You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. Every one of us at some point in time has done something that we knew in the moment was wrong. We knew we were doing something we were not supposed to be doing. Maybe you walked right past that do not enter or no trespassing sign through the gate into the place you weren't supposed to be. Or maybe you're going down the highway and you see the speed limit sign and you know that you're going 5, 10, 15, 20 miles over the speed limit and you just keep going pedal to the metal and you don't slow down. Or maybe your mom and dad had just finished explaining to you why you shouldn't do something. And the moment they leave the room, you turn around and do the thing they asked you not to do. You broke their rule. The summer before my junior year, I broke my collarbone. And before the bone had fully healed, I had an opportunity to go to the beach with my best friend, Mark. So I start packing my stuff up and I'm ready to go. And as I'm out the door, my dad stops me and says, hey, have a good time this weekend, but don't go in the ocean. The water's supposed to be pretty rough, and I don't want you to hurt yourself and re-break your collarbone. You know what? You're right, Dad. Thanks. Good advice. Love you. I'll see you when I get back. Hit the car. Go to the beach. And I'm just excited to be at the beach. When I get there, the, the ocean looks so inviting, and the waves look awesome. And, yeah, it's a little choppy, and the red flag is up, which means you're not really supposed to go in the ocean because it's not safe because it's a bad undercurrent. But I'm a strong swimmer, and I'm just going to go be in the water. What could be the harm of being in the water? So I go out into the ocean, and being in the water turns into swimming, and swimming turns into body surfing. And before I know it, I'm catching waves, and I'm enjoying myself, and just having a good time being in the ocean. Until I get caught in a really bad wave, and the undercurrent takes me under, and my face and shoulder are being slammed into the bottom of the ocean. And while I'm down there scrambling and just trying to stand up and to catch where I am, all I can think is, if I break my collarbone, my dad is going to kill me. Because I knew that I shouldn't be in the ocean. My collarbone hadn't fully healed. The red flags were up on the beach that says you can't go in. And my dad's only instruction was, don't go in the ocean. And we've all been there. We've done something we knew was wrong. We broke a rule. But breaking a rule feels like different than compromising a value. But it can be difficult to know where that line is. Today we're continuing with our scary story series. We're looking at 1 Samuel 28. And I want to give you a little bit of background to 1 Samuel 28. In 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, we find that Saul has been anointed as the first king of Israel. And throughout his reign, he's constantly at war with his neighbors, the Philistines. And along the way, Saul fell out of favor with God. So a competing king was anointed, David. And David had a claim to the throne. And we find out in 1 Samuel 28 that the prophet Samuel, who had been a really important religious, political, and social figure, had died. And 
Saul is once again at war with the Philistines. The Philistines had gathered up their forces to go to war against Israel in 1 Samuel 28. And David, this competing king, had fled from Saul, and he ends up with one of the Philistine kings, Achish. And Samuel was dead, so the people are just really struggling to figure out who to follow. And now at some point along the way in Saul's reign, he had kicked out all the pagan practitioners uh, of different religious practices who were mediums and necromancers. He kicked them out of the land. The Hebrew term for mediums actually refers to a hole in the ground or a pit where people would throw in sacrifices and these practitioners of pagan religion would try to conjure up underworld spirits and commune with the dead. And all these people had been kicked out of the land by Saul because their religious practices were not welcome in the nation of Israel. But we're told in 1 Samuel 28, verse 5, that when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. In verse 6, we're told that Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. And remember, Samuel, this person that he normally would have turned to, is now dead. So what do you do in your life when it feels like God isn't listening? You've prayed about something, you're worried about something, you're stressed out about something, you've offered it up to God, but you hear nothing in response. Well, in 1 Samuel 28, we see what Saul does in this situation. Saul said to his servants in verse 7, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go and inquire of her. And they find a medium for him in a place called Endor. Now, this isn't the home of the Ewoks from Star Wars. This is a small town on the other side of the mountain from where the Philistines were camped. So at night, Saul puts on a disguise because he doesn't want anyone to recognize him, including this medium that he's going to, this, this witch, this person who's going to conjure up a spirit for him. So he doesn't want anyone to recognize him, so he puts on a disguise, and he goes at night. And he says to the woman, um, I, I want you to divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I name. Now the woman was hesitant because she knew the king, Saul, had outlawed these practices, and she could get in huge trouble for doing this for him. Saul doesn't tell her who she, he is, but he talks her into doing it. And then when she agrees, Saul says, bring up Samuel for me. He wants to talk to the spirit of Samuel. He wants him brought back from the dead. So the woman, uh, she, she does what he asks, and she tries to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. And it says in verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, you have deceived me. You are Saul. In this moment, she sees through his disguise and his lies, and she knows exactly who he is and why he is here. In verses 13 to 14, the woman describes what she sees when she sees Samuel and Samuel's spirit coming up. She says, I see a God coming out of the earth, an old man coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul immediately knew that what he wanted had happened, that he had gotten her to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. So Samuel says to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answers him, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. He's desperate. He basically says, I'm stressed out. Nobody likes me. Everyone's trying to kill me. People hate me. And God is ignoring me. So Samuel responds to Saul and his stress. And he says in verses 16 through 19, 
Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned you away and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn your kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. In other words, Saul, you're about to die. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Needless to say, this is not the message that Saul wanted to hear when he decided to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. When he went to this, this medium, this witch, and asked her to do this thing. This is indeed a scary story. 1 Samuel 28 is the kind of thing that scary stories are built around. It, it happens at night. It's got this creepy setting. It has a witch. It has a ghost. It's all the things you would want from a crazy, scary story. And this story in 1 Samuel 28, it shows us that these practices, this, this practice of being a medium and, and necromancy, these practices shouldn't be taken lightly. But I want you to notice that the medium when she conjures up the spirit of Samuel, she's shocked when he shows up. It's almost like that wasn't what she was expecting to happen. See, this story doesn't offer answers about what happens when you die or if ghosts are real. Instead, this story leaves more questions than answers in that arena. But this story does tell us something. It tells us about Saul, who he was, what his character was like. It leaves us asking the question, why did Saul kick out the mediums in the first place? Maybe Saul did this because of his religious conviction. After all, it was the right thing to do. In Deuteronomy 18, they were told, you should not follow any of the abominable practices of the nations around them. They included being a medium or a necromancer. All these people were supposed to be kicked out of the land. And he was doing exactly that, exactly what God had instructed the people to do. We might call these practices magic, but they're really competing religions in that area. And God had told them to get rid of them. And Saul was just doing what was right. Or maybe he did it out of political expediency. See, Saul was still at war with the Philistines. It had plagued him his entire reign. And these practices were not Israelite practices. He's probably getting rid of people who would have given advantage to the enemy, who would have not been on his side to begin with. So is he doing it because of religious conviction or political expediency? We'll probably never know. But we do know why Saul chose to consult this medium, why he went to this witch. We know why he compromised his values. He tells us very clearly that when he sees the Philistine army, he's afraid. He says, when I saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. What did Saul fear? Well, he feared losing the battle. He feared losing his throne. He feared dying. He feared not being in control. We also see that Saul was an impatient man. The Lord didn't answer him, so he starts to rush God. I've called out to God, I've asked for a response, I haven't gotten anything, and I want God's response now. Now you need to know this isn't the first time that Saul compromised his values. In 1 Samuel 13, we read about why he lost his right to the throne, why God was not pleased with him anymore. Saul was at war with the Philistines, and he wanted Samuel the prophet to come and make a sacrifice before they went into battle. And he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't show up and the people, well, they were leaving. And Saul didn't want them to leave because he knew that he needed to win this battle. So Saul decides to take matters into his own hands. 
He's not going to wait for Samuel to show up. Instead, he's going to offer the offering himself. And that's exactly what he does. He offers the burnt offering. Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord. So God is going to replace you with someone after his own heart. He saw an army. He was afraid and he was impatient. Fear and impatience. Those are the things that defied Saul's life. So what do we learn from Saul? When we look at a story like this from the Old Testament, sometimes it can be hard to understand. What should we apply to our own lives? What does it look like to live out a life of faith in response to the example, the negative example of Saul? Well, here's what we learn from the life of Saul. Faith is more than a belief in a set of ideas. See, sometimes we try to think that being a follower of Jesus, being a, a Christian, being a godly person, is just about having the right belief set. And if I could say that I believe in the right things, that's okay and that's all that it takes. But it didn't matter that Saul believed the right things or he believed that being a medium and a necromancer was wrong. That wasn't enough for Saul. Faith is more than a set of belief. It's more than belief in a set of ideas. Faith is also more than a moral conviction. See, it's easy to go, well, you know, if Saul had just known what was actually right and wrong, well, Saul does know what's right and wrong. And it doesn't even matter that Saul passed legislation banning these practices because faith is more than a moral conviction. See, faith is actually lived commitments. At the end of the day, Saul did not put into practice the things that he said he believed and that he was convicted about. Saul didn't live it. He had empty beliefs, and that just doesn't cut it. We could believe in a set of ideas all day long. We could have all the moral conviction in the world. But at the end of the day, if we don't live out our commitments, it's not really faith. Henry Nouwen once said, you don't think your way into a new kind of living. You live your way into a new kind of thinking. I love what the book of James chapter 2 says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is talking about what it takes to follow him, the cost of discipleship. And he tells the people that they need to be willing to take up their cross daily. And then he gives two examples of what it looks like to choose to follow Jesus. He says that it's like building a tower. That before you decide to build a tower, you need to make sure that you can afford to build a tower. Otherwise, you look ridiculous. You'll never be able to finish the project. Or it's like a king who decides they're going to go to war. Before they go into war, they need to decide if they have what it takes to win the war. They need to count the cost to know what they're getting into. He says that following me is the same thing, that you need to know exactly what you're getting into. And then he ends that section in Luke 14, 33 by saying this, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, if we're going to be following Jesus, it may cost us everything. And we need to know that going into it and be committed to living that out. Following Jesus is not about agreeing to a set of beliefs. And following Jesus is not just about moral conviction. Following Jesus is about living your commitments to the way of Christ. Even when you're afraid, even when it's unpopular, even when it requires patience, and even when it costs you something. So what do you do when God doesn't give you what you want? 
When you've reached out and you've had these expectations and God doesn't seem to deliver on them. What do you do when God is slow to respond or seems quiet? When you've prayed about something and you've gotten no response. What do you do when you're afraid? When you're facing a big challenge in life and you don't know which way to go. These are the moments when we are called to live our commitments, not to turn from them. Saul turned from his commitments, didn't live them out. We are called to live our commitments. And Jesus modeled this himself in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples before he's about to be executed. We read that this is what Jesus says in Matthew 26. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here, talking to his disciples, remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. In this moment, Jesus knows that he's about to die. He knows that he's facing the greatest challenge of his life. He's probably experiencing the pain and the fear and the heartache. And we see here in these moments that he just is grieved in his spirit. And he wants some people to be around him. And he turns to the Father and he says, Please, if there's another way, let it be happening. But then he says, Not what I want, but what you want. See, what Jesus expressed here is lived commitments. Even though he was afraid, even though it was hard, even though it cost him something, he was committed to God's will to die on the cross. Not your will, not my will, but yours. This is the definition of lived commitment. 